This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 11 verses together here. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and they filled their boats, filled both boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything, and they followed him. Let's pray. Father, as we visit this text this morning, we pray that it might take root in us. We pray that um, no matter how familiar it might be to us, that we would find and see something in it that we have not found and seen previously. And we know this morning that cannot happen unless your Holy Spirit comes first, softens our heart opens our eyes and our ears to hear from your word what you have to say to us. I pray this morning, Father, that we would be changed by hearing this this morning. We would be provoked by hearing this this morning, Father, and that we would be challenged to live our lives differently this morning as we walk out of this sanctuary. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Most of us do not enjoy being told what to do. I know that. I used to be a policeman. I used to go around telling people what to do. More often than not, they didn't appreciate it. <clears throat> but what I'm really getting at is when, when you, someone tells you what to do, and you think you already know what to do. As a matter of fact, you might even think you're pretty good at what you're doing, and you don't need their expert advice. You know what I mean? Like you're a really good cook and you got this recipe down just fine and somebody comes along and tells you how you should be doing it, you know, and you really don't need that expert advice. Or maybe uh, you're a woman and your husband takes you out skiing and wants to give you his expert <laughs> advice. Let me warn you men, there are no words that can pull that off. <laughs> 
someone comes to me, might come to me and tell me um, how to build a home or how to build a cabinet. And I think I got a skill set there already. I've been doing it for 33 years and I think I'm pretty good at it and I got a system and, and I don't really need a lot of expert advice for people to show me what they want me to do that is geometrically impossible to build. Not to mention way beyond any budget they've ever dreamed of having. People tell me not to use engineered lumber, just use plain wood. They tell me adobe walls and log walls have the same insulation properties as insulated walls. And they tell me that houses built out of straw bales will last just as long as stick-framed houses. And I know better because I'm a pro. I've done this for 33 years. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Yeah. One more, one more piece of trivia before we dive into the word here, okay? When I was a kid back in the 1950s, we used to have these little round acid balls that we would put in our mouths that would dissolve the enamel off of our teeth. And to get one of these little acid balls, you would go over to this machine and you would put a penny in there. We called it a gum machine back then. And you'd put a penny in this machine, and the gumball didn't automatically fall out. You had to then turn the knob on the machine and make the penny drop. And when the penny dropped, then the ball came out. Okay? But sometimes, some of you in here might have a memory of this, you might have to turn that machine two or three times, and it was stubborn before the penny would drop. But eventually, most of the time it dropped, and if it didn't, you lost your penny, and you got to use those words your parents told you not to use. Didn't help anything, but it made you feel better. Felt like maybe you got a little justice there. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 5 here, and we're going to talk about this whole thing. Before that, let me, let me finish my story, though, about the gum machine. Uh, in 1976, a friend uh, on the police department invited me to church. And so I went to church uh, with him after being pressured into doing so. And I'll make a long story short and just tell you that I connected at that church with the pastor. And the pastor kind of took me on as a project. And over a period of, uh, of weeks, months, I don't know exactly, hearing some sermons, uh, opening the Bible for the first time, my penny dropped. And I finally got what it was that I was supposed to be finding. And when I realized that um, Jesus owned me and I was a captive to him and I would be a captive to him for the rest of my life. And that penny dropped and it has stayed dropped. Now we go to Luke chapter 5. Before we uh, s jump into uh, uh, this chapter, let's, let's grab a little context here. First of all, remember, Luke is a Gentile and he is preaching. He has written this letter to Gentiles. There's a group of people, Gentiles, those are people who are not Jewish, and they are asking themselves, this seemingly seems to be a Jewish religion that we are being asked to embrace and to live our, our lives to. The founder of it, Jesus Christ, was a Jew. He, is, he preached and his ministry primarily was to Jews. It was done in the first initial stages in synagogues. And now we, and we have always been considered by the Jews to be unclean people. Do we really belong here? Or do we have to become Jewish ourselves to fit in? And Luke has written this book 
specifically the thread through this whole book, the melodic line through this whole entire book is why Christianity is right for you Gentiles. That's what we want to find in this book as we go through it. Where we're at at this point in time, John the Baptist has come and he has said some things to the Jews that they didn't expect to hear. He told their sinners in need of a repentance. They had to have a baptism of repentance. That was a very un-Jewish thing. It would be interesting that Luke would point that out to the Gentiles. See, the Jews themselves have to repent. They don't have this thing wired. That's why that's there. And in, in the more immediate context of chapter 5, what Luke has described to us now is three miracles. Jesus has come. He's healed a demon-possessed man. He's driven that demon out. He's healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law who had a near-death experience with an illness and he drove the sickness out of her. And lastly, and most recently to chapter 5 here, Jesus has now gone public and he's doing miracles, healings publicly. And he's drawing crowds. People are wondering what's going on with this guy. How is he able to pull that, that off? And that's, uh, that's what leads us into uh, chapter 5 here. Jesus is establishing himself as Messiah. He hasn't come out and said yet that he's Messiah, but he's doing things that only can be done supernaturally. And so people are asking themselves, how is it that this man can do these things? And Luke is letting the story unfold through, a, through Luke's narrative, a series of events. He's unfolding how Jesus revealed himself to man. He started by doing miracles. And today we come to the fourth miracle. I'm going to do this in four parts. I'm going to give you a setting, uh, then we're going to get to the action that's in the, in the text, then we're going to talk about the miracle itself, and then we're going to be, there's going to be some interactions and reactions and some conversations between Jesus, Peter, James, and John. So let's start with the setting, uh, verses 1 and 2. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So location, geographic location, we're at the Gennesaret. Gennesaret. Um, Gennesaret is also known as the Lake of Tiberias. You might be familiar with that name. Or you might be more familiar with its main name, and that is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee goes by all three names. And if you can visualize this a little bit, we have the Sea of Galilee up here. That's where Nazareth is. That's where Capernaum is. That's where Jesus' ministry started. It's connected by the Jordan River. We get down to the Dead Sea. Down here by the Dead Sea, we have Jerusalem, and we have uh, Bethel, and we have many other cities in Judea. So we have Galilee up here, and we have Judea down here. Now, just so you don't uh, try to correct me, let me point one more little thing out to you here. In verse 44 of chapter 4, the verse immediately preceding this, it says, And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Now, I just told you, Galilee's up here, and that's where Jesus is at, at the at Gennesaret, but it says right there, Judea. If you look at your Bible, you probably have a little bitty footnote on that, and that little bitty footnote is going to tell you Galilee. Okay, we, we really need to understand that regardless of, of how they said or understood their territory and how they said stuff back then, we're up in Galilee at the Sea of Galilee. All right. Not only uh, is that where we're at, but it isn't just a sunny day at the beach where he can uh, do his own thing and have some privacy. There are crowds there pressing in, our text just told us. 
Where do the crowds come from? Why are they there? They're there because this guy just was publicly in a synagogue, drove a demon out of a man. And then he healed a woman who everybody knew was deathly ill, Peter's mother-in-law. And then he went public and he was healing, driving demons out of people and healing people and all kinds of things were happening and the public saw this. And so they're wondering, is this somebody? Who is this guy? What's going on? We can imagine, you know, the curiosity that's going on with the crowds. Then luckily, by chance, he spots two boats. And the boats are empty, it says. It says the boats are empty because the fishermen from those boats are out of the boats cleaning their nets. Now let's just understand these two boats. These aren't canoes, okay? These boats were probably boats 20 or 30 feet long. That would be from this wall to the back walls about 30 feet. These are pretty good sized boats. They're sailboats. Generally, two people on a boat. It takes two people to run this boat and to set the sails and to catch the fish and to do the nets and the whole thing. So we've got a pretty good sized boat and we've got at least two men on the boat. So, so that little context for you. It'll help you to understand that in a minute. These guys are cleaning their nets, which is an indication of some sort that, that what they would rather be cleaning at this point is fish. But they don't have any fish to clean. So they're cleaning their nets, which ne normally needs to be done every time you go out and go fishing. You've got seaweed and, and different things on there. So they are cleaning their nets. And what we, we learn from our text is that it says, after a night of fishing, all right, they had been out fishing at night. And most of you know me, and I'm not much of a fisherman. Because I always thought that you went out at dawn and dusk to catch fish. You didn't go out in the middle of the night. But apparently, at this moment in time, they did go out at night and fish. And that was the way they fished. The way they fished, the reason they fished that way was because they had bulkier nets and they understood that fish couldn't see their nets in the dark. Isn't that kind of clever? So you had to go out in the dark to catch a fish because the fish couldn't see your net in the dark and you caught more fish at night than in the day. Tri nickel knowledge, trivia. But that's interesting uh, for me, a guy who does not fish much, but they're disappointed, no doubt, because they've come back with an empty catch, and I understand that very well. <laughs> I usually tell people, I did catch a fish once. I've been there. So we've been out all night. Um, that's our setting. Now let's get to the action. It says next. In verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. Now think about this. They're not in the boats. We were just told the boats were empty. The fishermen were out of the boats cleaning their net. Isn't it kind of presumptuous for Jesus just to get in one of the boats? Now, it's not the first century, and we're not Jewish, and we don't live in that culture, but I'm just suspecting that that would have been odd. That would have been just to get on somebody else's boat uninvited. But nevertheless, he got on a boat uninvited, and as he, as he got on the, on the boat, uh, he suggests uh, something uh, to Peter. He says, put the boat out just a little bit. The crowd's pressing in. It's uncomfortable. And then he uses the bolt, essentially, just like I'm standing up here on this dais and, and then with the pulpit. And he begins, he sits down, it says, and he, and he begins to, to, to teach the people. So he teaches them for a while. What do you think he was teaching? Any ideas? 
does it matter? If it matters, Luke would have told us. Luke's got a point, and he's going to make a point. And if he told us what Jesus was teaching, apparently that would have helped made us go off on a trail and miss the point. So we're going to trust Luke here, put our curiosity aside, and we're just going to say, I doesn't, it doesn't matter what he was preaching. Luke, go on with the story and teach us what you want to teach us. So that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to trust Luke here. And, and the action starts with Jesus getting out on the boat and teaching. And then the next piece of action is he, is one, I call it the calling in, in verse 4. So in, in verse 4 here, he, uh, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He's basically telling Peter, let's go fishing. Out in the deep. You see, Peter, to fish, you have to go out where it's deep. And you have to put your nets there where it's deep. Jesus is offering to Peter his expert advice on fishing. Okay? Now, I'm guessing, it's not in the text, but there's a little bubble over Peter's head about right now. And what he might be thinking is something like, I hate it when people tell me how to fish, especially people who are carpenters. And there's no indication here that Jesus ever caught a fish that I know of. He's like me. Okay? But he's given Peter advice. As far as Peter and the crowd is concerned, Jesus is just a carpenter. And, and he's, he's just a guy who's maybe like a faith, faith healer. He's out healing people. But he's given fishing advice here. So, Peter, the professional, knows... He is, he, he, he is a professional. He owns his own boat. He owns his own fishing nets. Okay? He, he, he's a pro at this. Um, and he knows. He's been out fishing all night. He knows the fish aren't biting today. Right? Know what our text says? And, and he also knows, you know, Jesus, don't you know that you don't fish in the day? You fish at night. You know, you're not doing this right, Jesus. Isn't that what, is that what Peter says? In verse 5, what does Peter say? And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the net. The first thing we notice there is he calls him master. So how do we understand that word? Well, what's, what's he acknowledging here? All he's acknowledging at this point is that Jesus is a teacher. That's, you might call a rabbi, the one who, who taught you the scriptures. You might call him master or somebody who was teaching. That's all that Peter's acknowledging here. So let's don't take this any further than we should take it. He's merely saying, at, uh, for some reason, he's calling him a master. And he is submitting to Jesus' fishing expert advice. And he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. The obvious question here to me as I was going through this is, why is Peter so compliant? Why is he not irritated? What, what, what's really the background here? So what we're going to do here is we're going to do a little background. Uh, I'm going to actually call it, we're going to do our Bible theology homework, okay? Bible theology is uh, you, when you look at a point in of Scripture... In, in text, you, you look at the timeline in history and you say, this happened right there, okay? And so what you're really asking yourself is, what did they know and when did they know it? 
what did Peter know and when did he know it at this moment in time? So let's do a little, little exercise right here and let's see what Peter knew and what Peter knew in time. Where, if this is this moment in time, what's on either side of this moment in time? Turn with me to the book of John. Open your Bibles and let's look at the book of John together. Chapter 1. Starting in verse 35. And we're going to talk about John here. And this, this particular John is John the Baptist. 135. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about, about the tenth hour. One of the two had heard John speak and followed. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What did Peter know, and when did he know it? What we just read happened before Luke chapter 5, the scene at Gennesaret. This was Peter's very first encounter with Jesus Christ. His brother was a follower. His brother Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed Jesus out. And Andrew and some other disciple of John's followed Jesus, took him to where he was staying. And Andrew, John the Baptist's disciple, introduced Jesus to his brother Peter. Peter has met Jesus, and Jesus says, you're going to be called Peter. Peter knows this. Before Luke chapter 5. Now let's go back to Luke. But let's don't go back to Luke chapter 5. Let's go back to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 38, Jesus has just driven a demon out of a man in a synagogue in full public view. And in verse 38 says, And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with the high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately. And she rose and began to serve them. Now, I can spend a lot of time here, but I'm just going to tell you, she was deathly ill. We know that from the Greek that's in this text. And he brought somebody who was deathly ill back to health, who immediately then began to serve them. And who was this person? And who was there that Jesus brought back? It was Peter's mother-in-law, and Simon was there. This happened before chapter 5, the lake at Gennesaret. The question I'm trying to answer is, Jesus gives Peter expert fishing advice that Peter knows is all wrong. Why should Peter follow this guy? Why should Peter do what this guy says? Why call him even master at this point in time? And the answer is, is because he's already encountered this guy twice. 
the first time the guy told him he was going to change his name and he's the follower of John the Baptist and, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, who is this guy? Second time he encounters him, he heals his mother-in-law. Peter's wife must have been thrilled if he didn't know Peter was married. Here we are. Here's the context. This is why. This is what's going on in this scene. This is why Peter willingly knows to follow Jesus and to do what he said. He has history with Jesus. A history that's not apparent in the text unless we do a little Bible theology and look around and see what's right there. What really happened here just now is Jesus came to that beach for Peter. Jesus came to that beach with a crowd in tow. He didn't pick out two arbitrary empty boats and then luckily between the two empty boats accidentally picked Peter's. This was a divine appointment for Peter. Jesus had a plan on this day for Peter. And what that plan was and, and, and what became of it is what Luke wants to tell us, not what Jesus preached on that day. So let's continue with our story and let's talk about the miracle. The miracle, starting in 6. And when they had done this, I will let, he said, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. So that they began to sink. Maybe daytime is the best time to fish. No, this is a miracle. This is supernatural. This isn't just a good catch. This is, they didn't just catch their limit. They, they caught fish here. Their boats, their nets are breaking. Their boats are sinking. What we, need, we probably need to understand uh, from this is, you know, you, you got Peter's on this boat. He's not alone. His brother Andrew is his partner, we know through the rest of Scripture. Andrew's no doubt on this boat with them. And the two of them are there and their boat's about to sink. It's about to sink. And so what Peter realizes in that moment is, we need a bigger boat. Right? But he doesn't have a bigger boat. He doesn't have access to a bigger boat. So what does he do? He gets another boat. And the other boat that has James and John on it shows up there and they try to help him. But what happens? Between the two boats and the four men, their nets are breaking and the boat is sinking. This isn't supposed to happen. This doesn't happen. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. It's just not a good fishing day. They didn't just get the right bait or the right nets or, or, or whatever. This is a supernatural miracle. And, and they, they took note of it, and we should take note of it too. We don't want to just say, far out, good fishing. Far out, cool miracle. We want to realize that they were in panic this was a catastrophic moment out in the deep. Remember, isn't that, that where Jesus said, go to the deep, put your nets down deep. And to get your nets back up, the boats are sinking. And the nets, this is a bad time. This is a bad moment. We could go down right here, right now. In the midst of this catastrophe and panic, what does Peter do? He stops. He drops to his knees. He says, I'm a sinner. Oh, Lord, 
the penny dropped. This is Peter's conversion. In this moment in time, when Peter should be thinking about his life and his boat and his nets, he's on his knees. He's humbled himself before Christ. And, and, and what does he say? What, what do people always say when in the presence of God? Woe is me, I am a sinner. Nothing else to say. He humbles himself and he says, I'm a sinner. He doesn't say, oh, master. He says, oh, Lord. All right. I want you to notice one more thing here. Uh, who says, oh, Lord? Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Simon Peter. This is the very first time Simon is referred to as Peter. Throughout Scripture, Simon is Simon's original name. Simon, the old man, the fisherman, the rough, tough, uh, leather-beaten man, fisherman, out there in the rough seas and the oceans and everything else, that's Simon. Jesus gives him a new name. But he doesn't get his new name until his conversion. And at his conversion, he's now Peter. And we will understand him to be Peter. Although he's going to backslide once in a while, and Jesus is going to have to come back to him again and say, Simon, Simon. <laughs> All right? He will as, as Simon backslides. I want us to understand here, though, that this is Peter's conversion. But there's a rest of the story. We'll get to that rest of the story. Peter's fullness of understanding, his fullness of faith doesn't come in Luke until we get to Luke chapter 9. That's when Christ will ask Peter, Luke in Luke's narrative, uh, Christ will ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter will say, then thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. It isn't until that Peter's life extends out. Right now he can call him Lord, not realizing what he really means by Lord. He knows it's a level up from Master, but he's not going to get to Son of God. He's not going to get Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of the Living God. He won't get there for a couple more chapters. But he's en route. He's been saved. He's been converted. But he's not the only one. I got to guess, although it's not in the text, Andrew too had his moment. Andrew took Peter to Jesus to begin with, back in our story in John that we just looked at. I think Andrew got converted. And no doubt our text tells us, at the catch of the fish, they had, it says, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee. The guys on the other boat, I'm, I'm, I'm reading in the text, they were converted as well. These are the first three apostles, disciples, that Jesus selected. And this is their moment in time, according to Luke, as Luke narrates the story. The penny dropped for three or four of them, however you want to read the text. Now then, Jesus responds to their astonishment. Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Two things. Do not be afraid. They're on their knees. They're praying, I'm a sinful man. What shall I do? My boat is sinking. I don't care. I'm a sinful man. Do not be afraid. We see this phrase over and over again in Scripture as people, human beings, encounter the presence of the living God. Do not be afraid. Don't fear me. Do not fear me. From now on, you will be catching men. 
And our story ends, the last interaction. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Let me start by saying here, we cannot underestimate this miracle. These guys were rough, tough, rugged men. And they were brought to their knees. They've been out in that ocean before. They've been in dire circumstances before. They've been in storms. They've been in everything, but they were brought to their knees. They experienced something so supernatural, there was no other explanation for it. And they responded. They left everything, and they followed him. We know from uh, other texts and extra-biblical texts that uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that was a wealthy family. They had a shipping enterprise. They left everything. And they followed Jesus. Peter had a boat. He had nets. He had a business. He had a wife. And he left everything. I'm not suggesting he left his wife or, or didn't somehow have some income coming in. He, but you understand what we mean. He left everything to follow Christ. That's a, the, there's another sermon in there somewhere. What effect did it have on their lives but I, I put it, let me put it to you this way. That's the end of our text. W what I always want to ask myself is, so what happened next? What happened next? Let's, let me just read a couple of things f to you from Luke. They left everything, okay? Luke, in chapter 9, 23, 25, I'm just going to read these to you real fast. Jesus says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Luke chapter 14, verse 25, starting there. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first count the cost? There is a cost of following Christ. You must lose your life to follow Christ. In Luke 18, Jesus told the rich young ruler, Sell everything you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Cost was too much. Rich young ruler turned his back and walked away. What did this do to them? Then what happened? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew too, there, there are four places in the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, where the twelve apostles are listed. In each of those listings, the first four apostles listed are Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These four men, the first four of the twelve, were the leaders of the twelve. They were the outstanding of the twelve that led the other eight. It, we, we know at the transfiguration, Peter, excuse me, Peter, James, and John were there. We know at Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were there. 
We know when Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back from the dead, Peter, James, and John were there. These are the preeminent men that Jesus chose to be his twelve. To what effect? He chose these guys right here. Then what happened? Let's talk about Peter first. From this scene of humility and shame and embarrassment for his sin at the feet of Jesus. In Matthew 18, 21, he brags. How many times must I forgive? The rule was seven, by the way. He says, ah, about 70 times seven. That's what I do. Later, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Simon says, not all over my dead body. It's my words, not his. And, and Jesus says to Simon, 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 Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. You know, you're wrong, Simon. Then Jesus gets arrested in the same scene moments later. And Peter cuts off the soldier's ear. And Jesus says, my words, not scripture, not now, Simon. And he puts the ear back on the guy. About four verses later, seven verses later, Peter denies Christ three times. I'm asking you in Peter's life what happened next. All I want you to see is this was a flawed man. This was a flawed man that Jesus chose. This was not a worthy man. They didn't do, Peter didn't do something that he might be chosen. He was a flawed man. And in the end, John chapter 21, you read it. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. In the end, Peter was restored. And he was matured. And Christ finished his work with him. What about James? What happened next with James? James was the older brother of James and John. Seemingly of the three, Peter, James, and John, he should have been the preeminent one, not Peter. But for some reason, James was not the preeminent one. James, let me remind you, James and John, they, they were the ones, one time Jesus was passing down between Galilee and Judea, going through Samaria. Jesus was ministering to some people there, and they rejected him. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, Okay, they suggested to Jesus, hey, you remember when Elijah brought down fire and destroyed all those guys? Can we do that to these Samaritans? Okay, and Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. And at another moment in time, this is right at the, at the time of the last summer, James and John or their mother, depending on which version of the story you read, they came to Jesus and said, can we sit on the throne? Can we be on your right hand? Aren't we the greatest? You know, so what I'm trying to say, tell you about James and John is they're flawed men. James claimed to fame is he was the very first apostle martyred. Herod killed him. John, on the other hand, was not a martyr. Peter was a martyr too. Peter, when he was martyred, you, you might know the tradition. He says, I don't want to be, they were going to crucify him. And he said, I don't want to be on a cross. That was what Jesus did. He said, put me on a cross, put me upside down. And so our tradition, our, our history is Peter was a, crucified. He was martyred. James was apparently first, and then Peter somehow got martyred. And uh, then we talk about John. John is the only apostle that we know that was not a martyr. Okay, He lived to a very ripe old age. If you read first, sec, first John, Second John, Third John, you read about this guy, and he was the apostle of love. His people loved him. They followed him. He got so old, he couldn't walk in here and walk up to the pulpit. They carried, had to carry him in. But he was so old and sage and loved, you know, 
He will even told you. He even told us in the book of John. Conceitedly, I would suggest to you that I'm the apostle that Jesus loved. <laughs> he was flawed. All three of these guys were flawed. Yet, lived a life of service. They left everything. And then lived their whole life. With, with everything they had valued previously, they left it behind. That's how their conversion affected them. So what does it look like for you and me? Are you converted? Has your penny dropped? If your conversion is real, if my conversion is real, then you and I are fishers of men. Does your sin cause you shame? Are you embarrassed about your sin? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Or is he just a get-out-of-jail-free card for you that you hope to, to be able to use someday? Have you left everything to follow him? Do you think Jesus can work with your flaws? Or do you think that your flaws prevent a lifetime of service for you to him? Are your flaws your excuse? Peter, James, and John did absolutely nothing to be chosen by Jesus Christ on that day. But he chose them on that day in his wisdom and his sovereignty. And he made them fishers of men. There was no argument. In the next chapter here, before we finish this chapter, we're going to see the same thing from Levi, another sinner. A tax collector, the worst kind of sinner. All Jesus has to say to Levi is, follow me. Sovereignly, Levi and his sin and everything else is chosen. He follows him and he repents. That's what converted people do. To be clear here, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your help to do anything. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to, to occupy any position. You don't have to pay him back. We call this doctrine the aseity of God. You don't have to do any of that, but you get to. You want to. Because you're converted and you want to leave everything behind. If your conversion is real and your penny has truly dropped, that's what it looks like. So I'm going to ask you this, and I'm going to leave you with this question. And I hope you take this question serious. And I hope you deal with it. In your life and your circumstances, what would it look like? What should it look like if you left everything and followed him? In your situation right now, what should it look like? How should your life look different than it does right now at this moment? If you left everything and you followed him. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room, including myself, would answer that question because no matter where each one of us is or are, we're flawed. And we all hold on to things. We have things we will not let go of because they're mine. 
their blind spots I choose to keep. Convict us, embarrass us, shame us, go ahead and discipline us to bring us to our knees. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.